This is Pain Reframed. Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Reframed. We are honored to have Dr. Rachel Zoftness join us today. She's a pain psychologist in the Bay Area that really has focused her career looking at more teens and young young adults and guiding them in their management of chronic pain. She is a leader in this field. She has recently published a book on this that we're going to be talking about on this episode. And so with no further ado, let's bring on Rachel. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframed. We are so stoked to have Dr. Rachel Zoffness on the show with us. Rachel, thank you so much for carving out some time. I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. So, Rachel, do you mind just kind of giving the listeners some background? There's so many things you want to talk about. I, I really want to dive into your workbook, and we're going to give some great background on that and talk about a few portions from it. But before we do, can you kind of orient the listeners and let them know sort of where you're coming from, a bit about your background, how you got to the idea of writing this book, and then we'll jump in and talk about some of the, the key items within. So I'm a pain psychologist in the Bay Area. I'm also an assistant clinical professor at UCSF, where I teach a pain neuroscience education course for pediatric medical residents. I love teaching that class. And I also am really passionate about spreading pain education and advocacy for patients. And while I see patients of a lot of different ages, my passion really is kids and teens and young adults, because I feel like they're a little bit forgotten in this pain world. And while there's a ton of resources for adults with pain and even older adults with pain, there are very few resources for kids and teens. So originally, this workbook was born just from handouts that I was giving in my practice. I run a private practice focused on cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction and biofeedback and other evidence-based psychosocial treatments for pain. And I was giving my patients and their parents a lot of handouts, and it turned into a workbook. And Someone pointed out to me, why are these handouts and this workbook just for the patients in your practice? Why don't you make it widely available to all the kids and teens out there? Because there just really isn't much. So I pitched it to a publisher and they wanted it, which was sort of shocking and delightful. And that's how the workbook was born. I love that. So Rachel, treating chronic pain patients and specializing in that area is not exactly an easy or natural pathway for a lot of people. It can be a challenging population. It can be emotionally rewarding for sure, but you have to admit emotionally challenging at times as well. What brought you into that space? Was there something that you came across in your formative schooling? I mean, what brought you to specialize in that area in general and then to steer it towards the younger individuals? In psychology training, So I'm a nerd. I was in school for a really long time. I did a couple of master's degrees and a PhD and then an internship and a postdoc. And what was really amazing in retrospect was that I had zero pain education. And I think that's true for most therapists, regardless of training. We just don't get trained in pain because as you guys both know, we have this biomedical model. So really pain is exclusively in this biomedical sphere. But what's amazing about that is that medical doctors also often aren't taught about pain or at least not the biopsychosocial model. They learn about pharmacology, but they don't learn about pain neuroscience a lot of the time. So the way I came about this wasn't the traditional route. You know, there's very few training programs in psychology that focus on pain. We have behavioral medicine, but exclusively pain, that's not really very common. So what happened was as I was on my journey, I was really interested in pain. As an undergraduate at Brown, I actually wrote my honors thesis on the gate control theory of pain, in part because I was scared of pain and wanted to learn everything about it. And then sort of went on this journey where I was working with kids and adolescents because I always knew I wanted to. 
And then when I did my postdoc, my postdoc was on mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for chronic pain and illness. And I just thought that was so fascinating and so interesting. And my PhD program was CBT-focused, so I had a lot of training in CBT. And when I finished my postdoc, I was actually contacted by a pediatric neurologist who said that she had heard that I focused on CBT for kids and teens and that she had just read a paper. A paper came out by Scott Powers, who is also a pediatric psychologist, and he focuses on pediatric migraine in particular. And he had published this paper on CBT for pediatric migraine and had shown that CBT and non-farm approaches were, I think the paper said they were equally as effective as amitriptyline and other medications for pain. And so this stimulated her interest in seeking me out. And we had this conversation and we read the papers together. And I emailed the authors of the article and I said, what are you actually doing? You're saying you're doing CBT, but what does that mean? CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and it can entail lots of different things. You ask 10 different providers what they're doing behind the scenes and they'll give you 10 different answers. So they sent me the manual that they were using in their study and you know, it wasn't rocket science. If you've been trained in CBT with some pain neuroscience education, you can pretty much do the protocol. So this this doctor at the Pediatric Brain Center said, I am going to start sending you patients. She sent me her hardest patient first. (laughs) I mean, I can't tell you. Just to describe him to you, he had long unwashed hair because he couldn't, his pain was so bad he couldn't shower. He was pale and pasty. He was overweight. He had been in bed for something like four years and he sat on my couch and he rocked himself back and forth because the pain was so bad. And he had been given Thorazine for his pain, which is an incredibly intense medication. You know, we give it to patients on the inpatient unit who are having psychotic episodes when we need to sedate them. So the thought of this child on Thorazine for his pain was sort of overwhelming. But so not to go down the rabbit hole with that story, but but he was my first chronic pain patient. But the thing about psychology for pain is that all therapists are seeing patients with pain. And by that, I mean, we know that anxiety and depression has a physical or somatic component. We all know that. But for some reason in these psychology programs, none of us are taught about pain. And that really galvanizes me to go out there and talk about why physical pain and emotional pain are actually always and completely interconnected. Well, Rachel, thanks for sharing that. And I'd like to follow up on that, what you said, you know, on this just incredible lack of education and pain in those that are involved in the medical or healing professions. And it's across the spectrum. I always think it's interesting when you get outside your your lane or your world. And I'm going to go into the world of stepping into a rheumatology conference, stepping into a North American Spine Society meeting, stepping into a meeting of orthopedic surgeons. And you go to the exhibit halls, and it's stunning the amount of technology to image inside the body, to inject things into people, to cut parts of the body out. And there's no even corners of the room where there's people talking about other avenues for the management of pain. And I try to step back and think, okay, how did we get here? And as you eloquently pointed out, we talk about this biobehavioral model, biopsychosocial model, but even though it's been out for so long, it still has not penetrated the vast majority of educational programs. So I guess, you know, before we jump into the book, I just feel this tribe of new people coming together. 
And what is your perspective on where is the antidote to the next pain conference that blows away all the traditional medical conferences out there? And what does that look like? Tim, if I knew the answer to that, I would be an amazing amazing person. I can tell you, I mean, I honestly think the answer is stuff like this, exactly what we're doing. And it's providers in different fields, physical therapy and psychology and physicians and occupational therapists and athletic trainers just all coming together and having a voice. And there there are physicians who are woke and who know that this biopsychosocial model really is real and they and they see it have a bigger impact on their patients. So I work with the Stanford Pain Clinic and UCSF has an, an inpatient pain clinic for kids and and the physicians on those teams have seen the difference that psychologists make. So there's a physician at the Stanford Pediatric Pain Clinic who actually came up to me at a conference recently and told me sort of on the side that he believed that his pain psychologist had cured more of his patients than he ever had. And I just thought that was such a profound statement coming from a physician. So I do think it's possible. I get really frustrated and even discouraged sometimes because I also go to those conferences and I see all of the invasive surgeries for the stimulators and the medications. And and that's still a thing. And we have physicians who are still going out there and saying that opioids really are effective for chronic pain. And by the way, I am not a proponent of taking long-term opioid patients immediately off their medications. I think that's inhumane. So I don't want to pretend that that is the solution, but I do think all of us coming together and having a voice and spreading pain education and how pain works in the brain and how the limbic system and the cerebral cortex are always implicated in pain processing and how thoughts and emotions are always related to pain is a really powerful antidote because neuroscience is real. It's not a squishy, soft science. And I think that is a powerful change maker. I love that idea. And it really is because the, the the communication is happening with science and with neuroscience. And, you know, we're seeing these things. You can't argue with the science that's coming out on these new approaches. And as you mentioned, head to head, I always say, even if the approaches are equivalent, that's fine. But now let's look at the risk profile. Let's look at the risk profile between these two treatments. And almost without exception, the risk profiles for these types of approaches are so much more in favor of not doing harmful things to patients. So but I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears because you have put together such a wonderful reference on the, the workbook for teens. And if you could just tell the listeners just a little bit about how you've applied that in your practice on the big picture with your clients. Cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain isn't yet very popular. Thank goodness for researchers who are publishing in medical journals to sort of let physicians know that this option exists for pain treatment, like you said, with a very low risk profile. I mean, I think there's pretty much no risk in going to a pain psychologist for cognitive behavioral therapy. But so as I was doing this work with patients, what really moved me the most was the amount of change I was seeing in these kids. I love working with kids and teens. It's really just my jam. And what I was watching in my practice was sort of life-changing, not just for the kids, but really selfishly for me too. And I say this with sort of like a sense of humor, but I think as providers, we really go into this because we want to help and we really want to make change. And it was so rewarding and gratifying for me to see these kids who had been in bed for months and sometimes years 
get out of bed and go back to their lives. So the kid I mentioned before, who he was a teenager and he came into my practice and had been in bed, literally in his bed for, for years. He had no life. He wasn't seeing friends. He was academically years behind. He had no muscle tone. He had no life and he had given up. He was, of course, understandably depressed. And I don't mean that in a mental illness way. I actually say to the families who come to see me, if you're not depressed and anxious when you've had chronic pain for years, I'm going to be worried about your emotional health because that is what I like to call a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. You're not supposed to be 16 years old and be in pain for four years. That's just, that's not how you're built. So what I see when I implement CBT in these changes, a lot of behavioral change, pacing for pain, looking at your thoughts around pain, catastrophizing, navigating how you're sleeping and sleep hygiene and nutrition and even sunlight and family dynamics. And as we navigate that process, as I see these kids get better, the kid I was mentioning to you, what actually happened was after a couple of months, he was going for walks around the block and then walking to the dog park. And then he decided he wanted to go back to soccer and he was able to rejoin his soccer team. And he eventually got a tutor and went back to school and rejoined his friend group and rejoined the world. And he is in college now. And he recently told me that he was like elected to be captain of his ultimate Frisbee team. And this kind of change, it feels like magic, but it's not. It's cognitive and behavioral and physiological changes that happen around pain without pills. And I just think that that is just completely phenomenal. So I just, I put it into a book and originally it was just handouts, but the reason it became a workbook was because I wanted to put it into the hands of all the families and importantly, all of the providers. So when I was thinking about how to write the book, I put it in language that teens could understand and kids too, and parents, but importantly, any provider. So I was thinking, how can I put this in the hands of any physical therapist who's working with kids? How can I put this in the hands of any nurse or any physician who wants to learn about pain neuroscience and wants to be able to explain why something like CBT for pain or mindfulness for pain might actually work on a neurological level. So that's what I was thinking about when I put the book together. Well, Rachel, I just got to come out and say, so I've read the book. I'm, I'm holding it right now. But I mean, Tim always has a saying, you know, be of use. If nothing else, be of some use. And I've got to say that you were of some use. This is an incredible resource, you know, and I, I want to I want to kind of dial the the audience in on what we're dealing with here because it's such an incredibly approachable book. It's written in a language that is at the same time approachable, but not at all demeaning. It doesn't feel you're being talked down to. It feels like you're hanging out with a really fun, easygoing educational provider. Like that's the vibe that you get the whole time you're reading it. And what an incredibly approachable way to go through it. But Rachel, what I love the most is that you didn't just explain things. Like you didn't just say, here's what cognitive behavioral therapy is, or here's what mindfulness is, and here's some evidence saying that it works. Instead, you gave a very approachable introduction to the concept, but then every single section is actionable. So it then went into, here's how we're going to integrate that. And here's sort of the challenge to you. You know, how are you feeling? Do you feel any of these things to get you started? And then some lists of forcing them to think in their own mind to personalize it and really integrate it. Like, I think the way you laid this out was beautiful. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Thanks for that feedback. I was talking with you about this a little earlier. When the book actually came out, I sort of had imposter syndrome. Like, who do I think I am? But at the end of the day, 
there were no resources for kids or teenagers with pain and especially no workbooks. And I really wanted to make it interactive and approachable because as you guys both know, a lot of patients with pain believe that when a doctor or anyone says to them, hey, you should maybe see a pain psychologist or try CBT or try mindfulness. What they hear is you saying, it's all in your head. We think you're crazy. We don't even believe you. We don't think your pain is real. And it was important to me to say, hey, we believe you. Your pain is real. And at the same time, neuroscience tells us that pain is constructed by the brain and is always influenced by thoughts and emotions. But how do you say that to pain patients? And how do you say that in a way that's not stigmatizing? And how do you say that in a way that's approachable and, like you said, actionable and really engage them? So the style of the workbook I really liked and the the publishers, New Harbinger, to their credit, were wonderful and supportive. And they allowed me to do this sort of like educational, but also back and forth, but also skills-oriented approach where readers could get engaged in the content and add their own language and add their own experience while also receiving some education and some guidance. So I really appreciate that feedback. Totally. Now, Rachel, I wish you could see my book. I've got scribbles all over the front and back cover. I've got all sorts of dog ears here. I would love to chat about all of this. I mean, your expressions of using the tea kettle to decompress, you know, act first and feel changes later. Like some of those concepts are so critical to get across to folks who are struggling with persistent pain. But I know I can only choose one. I would love to chat a little bit because we don't talk about this as much on your section about all the different voices and being aware of them. The sick voice, the wise voice, the pain voice, and getting people to to just be aware, first of all, that they're there in that they can be challenged in that, like you said, brilliantly, even the words coming out of your mouth, your brain hears that, like which one are you feeding? And can you speak a bit to that, that overall concept? Totally. So in psychotherapy, there's this concept known as externalizing. And by that, I mean, when we have pain and by the way, when we're anxious or when we're depressed, we all hear that voice in our head. And by that, I do not mean like when you're schizophrenic and you hear multiple voices commanding you to do things. Not that, you know, we all have our inner critic or the negative voice that with pain will say catastrophic, terrible things about your body and your health and your future. And the reason that's really important is because research shows that thoughts affect emotions affect behaviors and affect your physiology, right? So we know there's this relationship between emotions and physiology, but I think what what fewer people know is that thoughts also affect emotions and physiology. So when you think to yourself, I'm broken, I'll never get better. How does that make you feel as a pain patient? Like the teen I was mentioning before, that was one of his major thoughts. I'm broken. I'll never get better. I've been in bed for four years. I think he was on 40 medications. None of my medications have helped. So therefore nothing will ever help. And imagine that thought rattling around in your head and what that does to you. It spikes stress and anxiety, which spikes your fight or flight response, which spikes pain. So part of breaking the pain cycle is identifying and externalizing that voice in your head and recognizing that while it sounds like you, it speaks in your voice and it happens in your head, it's not actually you. And so I try and get my patients to name it just to externalize it and identify it as external to them and not part of them. So my neighbor has a bumper sticker and it says, don't believe everything you think. And I just think that's such a brilliant concept because I think we just assume that because it happens in our head, the thought is true. 
And I think when you have chronic pain, it is incredibly normal to have this pain voice predicting terrible things, telling you you're never going to get better. But what that voice wants is for you to stay sick. It wants you to stay in bed. It wants you to be depressed and anxious because that means you keep your pain. That's how pain keeps power. So by exploding this pain voice, we sort of take our power back. But you can't do that unless you identify the pain voice and know what it sounds like. So I also have my patients not only name it, but sort of look at what they think it looks like. So I have them dress it and tell me its hair color. And the more realistic you get, the more they're able to turn around and say, oh, I see you you beastly, ugly pain voice. I know exactly who you are. That's Jim or Bob or, you know, whoever, we're, whatever we'd call him. And it helps them realize that the voice isn't true. It's just this jerk living in their head who wants them to be miserable. And it helps them take their power back in a really powerful way. I love that, Rachel. And could I ask you to, I always like listeners to leave and like tomorrow be able to say, you know, I'm going to apply this, you know, with someone I'm working with currently. And knowing that we have all spectrums of providers that tune into the show, is there a simple nugget that we could, you know, we're working with a patient and they they say this, their negative pain voice comes out. What might I do actually later this afternoon in clinic? I'm thinking of a patient, if that's a fair question. Totally fair question. And I would say, first, help them externalize the voice. Give it a name. Have them give it a name and have them tell you what it looks like. Like it could look like any sort of person. And then try and identify what it sounds like. So in the book, there's actually a list of examples of what common pain voice sounds like. So I'm broken. I'll never get better. This treatment won't work. If none of my medications have worked so far, none of them will work. My body is against me. My body is my enemy. And you as a provider can start listening. So that's something I've noticed in myself, in my practice over time. I've been able to start tuning in. So as patients talk to me, I hear their pain voice. I just hear the negative predictions and the catastrophic thoughts and just negative and anxious thoughts. And I keep a pad next to my chair. And as they're talking, even when I say, so how are you? What's been going on? I'll just keep a running list. And I'll reflect after I teach this concept to them. I'll later reflect back to them. I'll say, here's what I think your pain voice might sound like. What do you think? And do you want to add to it? So keep a pad, have them write down their pain voice, and you can be that support and listener. And then go through why you think it might be wrong and options for... So in the the book also, there's a cognitive restructuring chapter. And by that, I mean, why is it possible that your predictions aren't true? So when you predict you'll never get better, this is something I use with my kids all the time. As soon as they say something like that, I'll never get better, things will never change, I say, awesome. I love that you can predict the future. That is so helpful for me. I've always wanted to be rich. Can you tell me next week's winning lottery numbers? Because you and I can split it and we'll go to Fiji. It's going to be amazing. And they sort of sit there and then sheepishly tell me that they can't tell me next week's winning lottery numbers. And then we have a moment of recognition where we realize, oh, you can't predict the future. Pain voice loves to pretend it can, but that's not a superpower you have. So as soon as that is something that we honor, every time in the future we hear one of those fortune-telling catastrophic thoughts, we're able to sit there together and say, oh, hey, why is that thought a trap? Oh, you can't predict the future. So identifying pain voice, recognizing what it looks like, writing down what it sounds like, and then brainstorming together why that thought might be a lie is really, really powerful. 
Wow, that is excellent, Rachel. I mean, I I love what you just shared there. Clearly, you have high therapeutic alliance with your patients. And, you know, humor is such a wonderful way of engaging when we have when we have that alliance. And I hope people heard all the nuggets in there because there's so many things we can play off of that in any encounter, you know, no matter what our specialties are. So thank you very, very much for sharing. And I guess as we kind of come to a wrap, I mean, as you as you look forward to kind of your next journey here, I mean you're clearly this we want to get this conversation going. We're going to have you back. I hope what would you say though is like your next journey here? What's your next kind of thing you're working on? Can you tell us? Totally. I'm so galvanized to change the face of pain and how we treat it. And I've been teaching at UCSF School of Medicine, and it's a room full of pediatric physicians who are going to go on to be pediatricians. And it feels like a drop in the bucket to be training physicians in the biopsychosocial model of pain and to be talking to them about pain neuroscience education and cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. And to somehow do that on a grander scale would be so meaningful and so important because there are the couple of papers that came out by Shipton. I think that's, I'm almost positive that's right, Shipton and Shipton, if I'm not mistaken. And it showed that 96% of medical schools in the United States have zero compulsory pain education. And, you know, that's not true for certain disciplines, obviously, but across the board, that's just so, so striking to me because it's the number one reason people go to the doctor. So I think if we can start introducing the biopsychosocial model into medical school and resident training, I think we'll see a greater shift because whether we like it or not, there is a hierarchy in pain medicine. I don't know if this is controversial or not, but this is what I see. And physicians really are making most of the decisions and running a lot of the treatment teams and pain clinics and even pain conferences. So I think the more we're able to see the shift in the way medicine medicine approaches chronic pain, the more traction we'll get. So bringing everyone together is really important to me. All of us in all these different silos in these different fields, having everyone work together and be on the same page is so important, but also increasing pain education. And by the way, not just in medical school, but also in psychology, we are all treating pain. Every therapist out there is treating pain. So increasing therapist education, physician education, just across the board, promoting this biopsychosocial model of care, I think that's going to give us the most traction and do the most good. I love that. You know, Rachel, if I had to predict what our audience is thinking, I've got to think there's there's two primary themes running through their heads. Number one is, gosh, I wish I had a Rachel in my community <laughs> where I could refer to these patients to who, who makes this connections and comfortable in having these conversations. But I've got to think most people don't have a Rachel. You know, certainly in rural communities, someone who's specializing in this space and has gotten to this level of fluency. And so I guess sort of appreciating that's probably a reality. And by all means, speak to the prevalence of, of how many providers like you are out there But do you envision this workbook as something that practitioners could directly incorporate into practice? I mean, just picturing the primary care doc out there in rural Nebraska who, you know, has a couple of kiddos who are having a really hard go. I mean, do you see them taking this book and kind of working through chapters and using this as sort of navigational buoys to get into this space and try to be of some use? I love the term navigational buoy. I think I'm going to use it for the rest of my life. (laughs) I hope so. That really actually is a dream. The dream is that this is a resource that can now be used by any provider and access to care is a real problem. And when we talk about the biopsychosocial model, 
access to care and socioeconomic status and being able to afford a treatment like CBT. I mean, therapists are not often covered by insurance, as you know, because the model isn't set up that way. So while medications and procedures are covered all day long, an evidence-based treatment like what I provide is not covered by insurance. And that is just reprehensible. So the dream really is to put this book in the hands of any therapist or any doctor or any nurse and just have them now have a basic general protocol for approaching chronic pain from a non-farm perspective. So yes, that for sure is the dream. I hope that that's a thing that can happen because there's just not enough. We don't have enough boots on the ground. We don't, we don't, we don't have enough providers who are trained in pain across the board. So if this book can just provide a navigational buoy, see, I did it. I told you I would. If it can provide some sort of guidance or structure for providers out there, then yeah, that's the dream. Well, then uh, along those lines, Rachel, we're going to ask you to be a bit shameless here because we want this book in everybody's hands. I mean, like I said, I've already read through it. I've already recommended it all over social media. I hope everybody who is confident enough to dabble but doesn't quite feel they have the the nuanced experience to be fully effective is willing to grab that it's very reasonably priced. It, it's very easy to, to work through. Can you tell people where to get it and maybe where they can find out more about you in general, whether it's a website or across social media? I mean, really give us some plugs so we can and track your work and make sure everybody picks up this book. Obviously, it'll be in the show notes, but give us some direction before then. So the book is available on Amazon. It's the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. I have a very nerdy website with a lot of pain education in the resources section. It's just my last name, zofnis.com. What else? You do are I on say social media. I've seen you out there, right? Instagram, oh, right. That's Twitter. true. I'm on social media. What is even my handle? I think. Oh my gosh, this I'm is embarrassing, you right guys. Now. I'm like not a social media person at all. This is sort of new for me, but your handle real- is at Dr. Zoffness, D-R-Z-O-F-F-N-E-S-S. <laughs> this is so telling. Just to say, this is so telling. I'm very new to social media, but the reason I joined is because I just, I think it's so important to spread the word. So thank you, oh. Jeff. Yep. <laughs> thank you for telling me my own handle. <laughs> and I think on Twitter, I might, am I the real Doc's off? Nope. Something like that. Nope. It, it, it's Dr. Zoffness there as well. Oh, it is? Okay, yep. great. Doctor's offness. That's there, what it is. There you have it. Well, awesome. Well, <laughs> Rachel, we're going to have you back. And I really want you to hop on an episode with Adam Ryan and Liz Pepin. I, I think that having you jump on there with our MD and nurse practitioner colleagues, that would be an incredible conversation as well. So thank you so much for your time. And this is the beginning, not the end of the conversations. Thank you guys for putting this information out into the world. I think this podcast is really brilliant. And I do think it does that thing where it brings together all of these different providers from different backgrounds. It's totally approachable and your speakers are awesome. And I'm just so honored to be here. Thank you, Rachel. Well, folks, before I say anything, I want to say this title clearly to make sure that every provider who feels like they're close but needs some guidance to work through this process can go out and get it. But it is the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. And like Rachel said, it's at Zoffness. That last name is Z-O-F-F-N-E-S-S.com. Make sure you pick that up. I don't think anybody is confused at this point that, that Rachel has a tremendous handle on seeing these patients. It's incredibly authentic and effective with them. I mean, just these 
ideas of treating pain without pills and, you know, having them and supporting them and advocating for this kind of treatment in our system is so critical at this juncture. So huge thanks to Rachel for trying to bring the voices in the wilderness together and really combat the epidemic of chronic pain amongst a population that doesn't have a lot of resources guiding them, amongst our teens who are in some ways are most susceptible and yet are the least armed to deal with this stuff. So a huge shout out and thanks everybody for being here. Thanks everybody for being in the Facebook group. I shared Rachel's book in there this morning and just already some great dialogue on it. If you're not in the Pain Reframe Facebook group, hop in there. We've got a couple of thousand folks who are always having great conversations about these episodes and resources. So make sure you jump in there and obviously check out ispinstitute.com. So many good classes coming up. We have the Pain Science Series rolling out. So everyone take a look at that very affordable, high impact weekends to increase your fluency and managing what can be challenging folks, but can be incredibly rewarding. So thanks everyone for the support. We'll talk to you soon. Until then, goodbye from the Pain Reframe crew. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.